This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Fellas, I'm ready to get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like, I, you know I'm the man, don't you? Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. You're listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibbony, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview. Transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square. This is the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibbony, brought to you by the Ann Campaign. Justin, it's good to be back in the saddle. How, how are you? I feel the same way, man. It's good to be back, uh, ready to talk some politics from a Christian worldview, man, as we had been doing for a while. You know, we got a little off uh, track with uh, COVID and all that, but hopefully we can get back on. So I'm excited, man. Yeah, we're back. I mean, it was fun, uh, always fun to have uh, Chris Butler with us, and we were able to bring you some episodes uh, that way. And of course, we've been we've been teaming up with Chris for quite a while, including uh, with compassion and conviction and campaigns, uh, a faithful guy, a guide to faithful uh, civic engagement that came out last week. And uh, I don't know about you, Justin. It's been a it's been a lot of fun to see folks digging through that book and sharing uh, what they're getting out of uh, out of the work we did. Uh, how's, how's the book release been for you? It's been rewarding, man, uh, just to see, like you said, how people are reacting to it. People really feeling like not only is it biblical, but very practical uh, and just seeing how it works on a number of levels for people, for people who are just entering the conversation about politics and want to learn more. And then people who have been in it for a while, but want to do it better. And so, yeah, I've just been blessed by the feedback that we've received and, and glad that it's been a, a good resource and blessing for others. And ho- hopefully that'll continue. You know, especially meaningful to me have been um, the pastors who have who have written in or shared about it, who have you know reflected that they think it's going to help their congregations. And mm-hmm. I mean, we've told stories on this podcast. Uh, I know you were personally affected by a story you heard about a a, a church where, where the, a, a literal fight broke out over politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we know pastors are are trying to shepherd their folks through through this and, and that the book might be helpful means means a great deal. So uh, thanks to everyone who's checked out the book. E- e- yeah, sorry, Justin. I was say that was part of the purpose, just that it would be a resource to Christians, including pastors, uh, who we know aren't necessarily experts in politics, but I think they can use right. this biblically, you know, this uh, resource that has a biblical foundation and it, it'll be very helpful for them. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks to everyone for checking it out and we'll, we'll make sure you get updates. Uh, I think there will be some uh, exciting news and excerpts of the book showing up in, in some places, but would encourage you to, to check it out. Uh, just, we have, we have a full slate of, of news and, and current events to get to in this episode. So let's, let's, let's dive in. And one of the more perplexing, I think, public policy, social, challenges related to COVID uh, for, for, for me and certainly for the, the country at large has been the, the conversation about whether to reopen schools or not and, and how to do it. And you see 
education is generally state and local run. And so there, there's always been a, a significant level of diversity and practice, practices when you, uh, uh, when you speak about education and it's no different uh, in this situation. You have, uh, you have some localities, even down to the school district, deciding different approaches. But you also have national level pressure. Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos, the president have been seen as uh, trying to uh, push schools to return, but so has the New York Times editorial board, uh, which spoke out in favor of schools returning with all kinds of sort of advised precautions and, and practices. I have to say, Justin, I'm, I'm interested. You know, you have you have uh, school age kids. I, I, you know, my search is 20 months, so so uh, we're not sort of in this personally yet. My sense is I've just been very skeptical, whatever, especially when you talk about precautions and sort of, uh, you know, having smaller class sizes, which is a, you know, a a, a problem in itself for many schools uh, to, to, to even have the space to try and split uh, classes up in that way. But I just don't see how you're going to get high schoolers to stop kissing each other, <laughs> how you're going to get elementary school kids from uh, not stealing each other's masks and sort of uh, playing around, you know, for all of the big meta conversations about uh, way schools can change policies and all that. I just think at the end of the the day, this is just a very practical problem with the fact that you're talking about talking about kids (laughs) and and kids are going to horse around and kids are going to invade people's personal space. Uh, There are so many elements to this, how teachers are affected, how workers and the workforce are affected. But but Justin, how how have you been trying to think through uh, this political, but also social and even familial uh, decision about uh, whether to return to school. Yeah, Michael, you, you hit it on the head. I mean, this is one of those issues that hit home, right? I have two school age sons, one that's one that's not in school yet. And so it's a conversation that me and my wife had to have, you know, along with seeing what the school district, Atlanta, Atlanta Public Schools is going to, you know, is going to do. And so we've been kind of uh, looking out for that, talking with friends and just seeing how everybody's going to handle it. And this is a very important debate, I think, for everybody to have. Should these schools reopen or not? What should that reopening look like? Is it virtual? And so on. And, you know, I'm not going to act like I'm an education expert, uh, nor am I an infectious disease expert. Uh, but I do think there are a few things that we should consider. I think I think you hit on the head. I mean, it's going to be hard to control how kids interact. That's real. I think we also have to consider the health of teachers who may be high risk. And what does that mean for the high risk teachers? Are there other ones that can be in the classroom or or whatever? But I'll tell you, I think I've been mostly frustrated by the stock answers that we get from conservatives and progressives. Um, And I think they've really just been failing the people. You you got some conservatives, namely Trump and some folks in his administration who want to act like the crisis doesn't exist. Right. Just carry along move along like nothing's wrong, you know, get back to school and that's it. And then I do think, you know, in some instances you have some progressives in the professional class, some in the media that act like there's no consequence to sitting at home or doing school virtually indefinitely. And I think that's a mistake too. Um, I do understand why most schools are going virtual. I think you hit on the head why why that's happening, happening initially. 
But I do want to urge folks on that side of the conversation not to get too comfortable with that as a solution. Right. Let's be safe. And I think that hits on that point. But let's also be as innovative and as thoughtful as possible, too. Uh, And I say this not even mainly worried about my children, Michael, because, you know, we have the resources and we can stay at home and we can work from home and do all that stuff. We're going to make it work one way or another, whether you hire somebody to come in the house or whatever. We can do that. I'm mainly worried about kids in low income households because the likelihood that they're going to get the same benefit of virtual learning is very low. And many of them are already behind so that the longer school is virtual, the further they get behind. And so if you're talking about half a school year, a full school year, you got kids who are literally almost missing a whole year of school because it's just not going to be as effective for them. And it's not all that effective for for really young kids anyway. You know, kids who are the my my son's ages. We have to keep that in mind. Also, you got to think about low income parents getting back to work. Right. So this is this is another factor that we have to take into consideration because if, if the kids are home, I can't really afford somebody to take care of them. How do I go back to work? How do I make all these things work? I'm thinking of the single mother who's just struggling to to figure all this out. Uh, very tough. But here's something else, too. What about those kids who's, you know, who are doing their best to stay away from gangs and drugs? And the only thing that was keeping them away from that type of stuff was school. Right. Right. Virtual school is not going to be as engaging. It's not going to take you out of those spaces that you were in. And that's tough. And so even right now we do our social distancing and all that. But we do kind of training and conditioning with some of the kids in the area uh, in preparation for football, even though you can't tackle or any of that stuff. And you got to understand that's some, that's the only thing some of these kids have to look forward to all day. That's the only time that they interact. Some of them interact with a a male figure all day. Right. And so without that, what would they have? And then lastly, I would just say this most, we have to, and this is just the, the numbers. Most instances of child abuse are reported by schools. Right. So if you don't have kids going to school and they're just sitting in the house, these kids that are getting abused are just sitting with their abuser with no one to report it. So that's not to say that we shouldn't start off virtually. That's not to say that there aren't great reasons to have virtual classes right now if that's what we have to do. I just don't want people to get too comfortable with that as a solution, mainly because of low income households and these low income kids are going to be further and further behind. So I'm just saying Let's be as innovative and as thoughtful as possible, because there are consequences, very serious consequences, especially for low income people. If we just stay virtual indefinitely and we don't really challenge ourselves to do as much as we can. Yeah, I mean, just to add to that, you know, I've done a bit of work in the past on uh, summer feeding program, the uh, the summer meal program, Mm -hmm. which is a program that was specifically created to fill the gap. For kids who generally get their meals through schools, uh, and so to to extend sort of the school shutdown exacerbates the the the, the, the hunger crisis as well, and, and where these kids are, are are able to get meals, which which uh, for for too many kids, it's it's uh, they they rely on those school meals, obviously school lunches, but then there are programs. Where, where they could get other meals as well through through public schools. J- Justin, to me, this is uh, this whole situation is like the very pinnacle of public leadership and governance. Mm-hmm. 
which is which is that there are no satisfactory answers. <laughs> and what's been interesting is to see kind of some of the same kind of like culture war uh, polarized responses try and map onto this very clearly, very evidently like perplex and mm-hmm. unsatisfied. Like there is no satisfactory conclusion to this. And yet we don't, I'm not, I'm not sure we know how to talk as a society. Uh, and I, I certainly don't think our politicians know how to, t- how to talk about situations where all the options are bad, where, where no matter which way you choose, in the hindsight of history, it may it may look like the wrong decision. Uh, I take all of your points really well. I'm mixed on the science. I too am not an infectious disease expert. I am concerned about. It seems like kids don't, and I say seems because it just seems like I'm not satisfied that the answers are final on these questions. But it seems like kids generally don't suffer from COVID in the same way that adults and particularly highly susceptible sort of um, uh, high risk adults do from COVID. But I have, there there also seem to be reports that there's potential for long-term lung damage. And so you just think, you know, like, like, gosh, are we, uh, is this the kind of thing where we, uh, to avoid all of the, or to try and address some of the uh, short-term challenges of, you know, what do we do if we don't return to school? Uh, you know, c- could this be something with really serious long-term health impacts for kids, even if they don't suffer in the in the short term, even if they get over sort of immediate symptoms right away? Uh, you know, it, is there long-term lung, lung damage, for instance? Uh, and it's just, it's just a, a, a tough thing. I do think that there are going to be all kinds of fits and starts to it. Um, I am glad that there is local, you know, for all of the pushing that the Trump administration has done. Um, this is at the end of the day, a, a local uh, decision. And so school districts are going to be able to be uh, sensitive to the, uh, the the needs of their community. I think we do need to keep an eye on uh, inequalities. And like many crises, as you said, this kind of brings to light the fact that those on sort of the, the bottom of our inequality of our inequalities suffer no matter what the choice is. If they go back to school, they may be the most uh, unable to protect themselves and their families. If, if, if we don't go back to school, they may be, they may be the less equipped to, to thrive uh, under those circumstances. So it's, it's just, it's just very tough, Justin. Uh, I, I would just urge folks to not become dogmatic about this because it's so complicated because it's not it and it shouldn't be a political sort of culture war issue even though the stakes are are so high yeah that's it i think you hit on the head this this is the reason that education should be local i don't think there's one one answer i think we should be cautious we should care about the health of teachers and the children uh, we should also care about the the long-term effects of especially low income children not going to school and not getting that education, because as we know, that has some very serious even health uh, outcomes at the end of the day. So uh, be be prayerful, pray for your leaders. This is not easy, but this is what leaders are here to do. And I I do pray that leaders take this seriously and put these children first. Um, Absolutely. Consider the teachers unions. Appreciate what they do. 
I think, you know, you have some teachers unions that have, I think, in Los Angeles who have added all kind of other issues to the question. Yeah, we'll go back to school if you defund the police. And that's not like that's not what we're talking about right now. That's an important issue. But we need not combine that necessarily when we're talking about the children. So pray for your leaders and leaders uh, make thoughtful decisions that consider uh, all the the data, but also uh, some of the other things that we discussed today. Yeah, that's good. We're going to take a break. When we get back, uh, we're going to talk about what's what's happening in Portland. This is the Church Politics Podcast. We're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. Uh, Justin, uh, this past Sunday, we saw the 60th uh, day of protests in Portland. Uh, Portland, which is uh, has something of a reputation for its activism, uh, has been uh, protesting. Uh, citizens have been protesting for the last uh, 60 days in the wake of the George Floyd protests. Uh, the situation in Portland has accelerated, has 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 heightened in intention over the last several weeks uh, after the federal government sent uh, federal uh, agents into Portland, sort of to to, the, to their argument to protect a federal courthouse in Portland. This was seen by many uh, in Portland, including the mayor, as an uninvited, to use a polarizing term, occupancy. Uh, we've seen on the news now pretty intense back and forth and, and some violence, uh, some t- tension and between state and federal officials, local and federal officials. And we've seen protesters uh, in, in, some, in some ways uh, determining a lot of what happens in, in Portland right now. There have been uh, breaches of uh, government buildings. Um, there are, there's been tear gas and sort of, again, we're seeing sort of militarized law enforcement in the streets. It's been quite a scene and, and uh, distressing to an extent. Justin, well, and the last thing I'd add here is, you know, is researching for this, this episode. Uh, you, you know, it does seem that uh, similar to your comments about uh, teachers unions in, in LA and, and sort of how, uh, how, how they're trying to combine uh, uh, and, and sort of tack on issues. Uh, it does seem in Portland that the the original focus of the protest is being lost a bit. There's a uh, there was an article in local Portland news. Uh, Dr. Shirley uh, Jackson, who's a, a professor at Portland State University, suggests that uh, the the, pro- the protests have been have been hijacked. Uh, in Portland. Justin, how should we be thinking about what we're seeing on the news? Should people be scared about sort of the federal uh, interjection here? Is this an issue of sort of a a loss of state and local control or uh, uh, try and help us pull apart some of the elements that are happening in this in this complicated story? Yeah, I'll try from from afar, but I, I will try. Um, Well, let me start by saying this, Michael. Um, Thank God for all the people who peacefully protested in Portland uh, against racialized violence and for uh, Black Lives Mattering. 
I want to start off by saying that uh, the ones who did it early on and the ones who may still be out there amongst the others uh, doing Mm. that. Uh, I think it's important. I'm glad that folks did that. Um, But that said, uh, Portland is very simply in a a state of disorder. Uh, Portland Mm. right now is a circus. It's counterproductive. And at the end of the day, it's harmful to the cause. Uh, the Black Matter, the Black Lives Matter protests in Portland have been co-opted. Uh, there was a, I think there was a um, op-ed, and I think it was the Washington Post, where the president of the NAACP out there, who who I believe is a, a clergy member, uh, he called the pr- protest a white spectacle. He said yep. uh, the folks out there are mostly privileged white Americans with their own agenda, and he asked mm-hmm. for an immediate refocusing to say, hey, let's let's focus on what this is really about, not the agenda that you kind of brought with you. Uh, there's also a video uh, out of a black police off- officer in Portland who was saying that the white protesters were insulting him, taunting him and even making racist comments towards him about his facial features and things of, of that nature. How ironic. Right. A, a, a protest that started off against racism. You bring these other folks in and they're they're being racist towards uh, black cops. It's just ridiculous. I mean, it's almost like these folks are living out their favorite video game. Like it's just a new adventure. Uh, they co-opt the pursuits of black and brown uh, people with largely performative activism, with, you know, mm. theatrical stunts. Uh, and they can act out in such an impractical manner. Because they're not directly impacted by the injustice that they say they care about, because the folks who are directly impacted by that injustice don't have time for all the theatrics. They don't have (laughs) time for all this performative stuff. It's folks who come from in from the suburbs or whatever they want to do and kind of live out these little, you know, the the, they play act. And and it's really hurting uh, the situation. Then on top of what's going on in Portland, the Trump administration comes in. It makes matters worse and probably does the worst thing that you could do by sending in unannounced, unmarked federal agents who it's been reported are, you know, arresting people without, you know, without much conversation. They don't know who you know these people are that have come to get them. And all that the Trump administration did was make these silly anti-fascists or whoever look like they actually had a point. Right. right. So it just makes it makes the situation that much worse. What's going on in Portland is a microcosm of American politics. Trump and white progressives go back and forth. They trade the insults, <laughs> they play yeah. tough, and the needs of the rest of America go unaddressed. That's the state of American politics right now. Um, yeah. And, and, and I'll, I'll kind of end with this. These ultra-progressive mayors and governors have to decide whether or not they really want to govern. Are they going to try to be woke heroes or do they want to uphold the vow to serve all the other people in their jurisdictions who have to actually live in the destruction and filth that these anarchists and Antifa folks are leaving behind? Right. I think they need to take a, you know, a word from from black mothers. My mom used to always tell me, look, I'm not your little friend. Right. <laughs> Which means I love you, but you're not. I'm not here to play. With you, right. Don't yeah. play with me. Yeah. Mayors and governors are supposed to listen to the people and take their concerns seriously. I don't have a problem with that. But when folks are throwing these performative temper tantrums, these leaders do their other constituents a disservice by trying to be cool and friendly with folks who are being unreasonable. 
Do your job. Don't set up autonomous zones for folks who just want to tear up the city. Set clear guidelines and enforce them as compassionately as possible. But you have to do your job. Letting these folks do whatever they want to do puts seniors, women, children and others in danger. Um, And then I said that was the last thing, but I got one more. (laughs) And then there's these Twitter fingers, right? Whether they're coming from the media, academia or whatever, who are subtly or not so subtly encouraging and rooting these protests on because they want to see those institutions destroyed, too. Right. And I want to be very clear. There's a serious moral hazard in encouraging these violent protests while you're sitting in an ivory tower or behind Mm -hmm. an Apple screen. You're in no physical danger. It's not your business in your neighborhood getting burned down or looted. And you don't have to live in the city once it's left uh, devastated with grocery stores gutted and other necessities out of reach. So chill out. Right. Encouraging these things, whether subtly or not so subtly, is not cool when you don't have to live there. Um, And I I hope people will become more responsible in how they treat it and the media will be more responsible in how they cover it. This is not the time to defend or uh, promote some narrative. This is the time to to uh, report what's happening and hold these leaders accountable for doing what they told the people they were going to do. Yeah, Uh, I I mean. It's right. It's not just the protesters who are treating this like a video game. I mean, I think I think that's the point or or at least one one of the points that you're making, which is there there is a odd sort of detached performance going on that doesn't doesn't seem to reckon with sort of what what's what's actually happening on the ground. I, I, you know, you read through some of these reports and. I do think that there's been a correct, a helpful correction towards the sort of dramatizing and fear mongering around quote unquote riots and sort of isolating and blowing up sort of uh, examples of violence to sort of make things seem more widespread than they are. But you also read these reports and it's like a, it, it, it's it's kind of Orwellian <laughs> the, the the way that these reports kind of go out of their way to to like what 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 does a a, a mostly peaceful day mean uh, if there's like, like any day is mostly pe- <laughs> any day is mostly peaceful if there if there's a if there's a battle going you know you think about like during. I don't know, Revolutionary War or something like, you know, if there's a battle going on in the city. Yeah, probably most people in a city or in a state aren't fighting, but the action is going where the fighting is. <laughs> you know, it's kind of kind of uh, uh, ridiculous to talk about. Oh, it's mostly peaceful because there are some families that are, you know, cooking dinner at home <laughs> and or, you know, some 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 folks who are just, you know, watching what's going on. Right. Well, well, no, the, the news story is like what what actions are taking place. And so uh, I, I do think we need to, yes, be be. Uh, reasonable have perspective but the perspective can't be that this is merely an ideological struggle Mm -hmm. because because as you noted uh underneath the ideological struggle are people who are afraid to go to work if they're able to go to work where they are because they don't want to go through the protesters there are 
uh, people who can't send their kids to the daycare or can't walk them to their their aunt's house because uh, because their city is unsafe or at least they have the they they don't know where their city is safe. Right. <laughs> this is not a performance, uh, folks. And politics is not at, at the end of the day. Politics is not about performance. It's about what is actually happening um, with with people. Uh, and so I appreciated. Well, I appreciate your comments, Justin. I appreciated the the uh, so some of the uh, folks who have uh, spoken out in Portland about sort of how the protests have uh, moved a bit from their original atten- intention. And uh, I-, I hope we don't lose sight of what drove people into the streets. And maybe before we take a break, Justin, I, I know we have the Ant campaign it has not lost its, its focus. Uh, we remain focused on uh, racialized violence and law enforcement uh, and our criminal justice system Um I know that we'll have more uh, news coming out on that front in the coming weeks, but uh, maybe before we go to break, would love for you to speak a bit about why we why we haven't lost focus and some of the some of the questions that that that, that you think need to be addressed um, that aren't necessarily being captured by some of the scenes that we're seeing in Portland and elsewhere. No, that's good. I mean, the fact of the matter is. At some point, the conversation about race is going to die down. At some point, some some folks on one side or the other are going to overplay their hand and people are going to get sick of hearing about it. But I think it's important for the body of Christ to say, no, 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 this this must continue. Uh, We must continue to have this conversation. This isn't something we're doing because it's trendy. This isn't something we're doing because it's fashionable. And so the end campaign has been hard at work putting together a coalition of biblical Christians from all biblical Christian uh, demographics to address to address um, racial injustice for the long term. And I'm not just talking about talking about it. I think that's important. We have to bear witness and say what we believe and what the Bible says about justice. But we also have to change policy. And so in a nonpartisan way, we're going to go about changing policy to some extent on a national level, but really focusing on a local level to make sure that racial that we start to take racial injustice out of our systems and out of our institutions. And I'm just really excited about the team that we've been uh, putting together. We've got guys like Benjamin Watson and just a whole bunch of other folks who are coming together to say, no, no, no. When this conversation dies down. We're still going to be here fighting. So keep your eye out for uh, the prayer and action uh, justice initiative. Uh, this coalition is, is very serious, is very hard at work on policy and principles. And also we'll keep on uh, with the churches helping churches. Uh, and so it's going to be good, yeah. man. I, I think a lot of good work is going to come out of this. Appreciate the work that you've been doing, Michael, on it. And I'm excited to launch this in the next week or so. Y'all stay tuned. Great. I, I didn't know how much uh, you were going to share. So, so folks, you 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 uh, you heard it here first. Uh, uh, let's take a break. When we get back, we're going to talk about an interesting letter to the DNC and to Democrats, and we'll we'll give you more details on that after the break. This is the Church Politics Podcast.
We're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. And just in last week, a group of a uh, hundred Christian pastors, academics, and others urged the DNC to adopt a party platform that's friendlier to abortion opponents. That's how the AP phrased it. Uh, the letter organized by the Democrats for Life urged for the platform to change on its uh, 2016 inclusion of calling for federal funding for abortion, a repeal of the Hyde Amendment, and really makes an argument that the platform should not just sort of weaken its pro-choice commitments, but but they uh, ask the party to reject, quote, we urge you to reject a litmus test on pro-life people of faith seeking office in the Democratic Party. Just a bit of history here, which is that this is, you know, a perennial debate. Every four years, there's a debate around how abortion is going to be covered uh, in the Democratic platform, uh, particularly since 2000, we saw uh, we've seen platforms that have done exactly what Democrats for Life and their partners asked for here in 2000. There was an invitation to pro-life Democrats to uh, to enter all levels uh, of, of of power and station in the Democratic Party. Um, in 2008, the Democratic platform called for reducing uh uh, abortions in the country. And then, of course, in 2016, we saw things uh, swing back left, uh, reversing some of the pro-life or at least sort of uh, more open tent rhetoric of the par- of the party platform that had sort of grown since 2000 up to uh, kind of a, a peak in, in 2008. And in 2016, they uh, reversed there were, there was no call for reducing abortion and they called for a repeal of the Hyde amendment obviously democrats lost that election some people think that their aggressive approach on abortion was part of the reason why we've certainly made made the argument that that was a not the but a contributing factor and so 2020 is a, a year where folks are trying to reopen that debate Justin, do you, do you think these folks have, well, I, I guess the last thing I'd say, you know, so Democrats for Life organized this. Our friend, Rever, uh, Reverend Gabriel Salguero signed the letter. He's president of the National Latino Evangelical Coalition. John DeBerry, who we've talked about on this podcast before, who was a, a Tennessee state representative, uh, who was uh, basically the party worked against his uh, election um uh, to higher office um, because of his opposition to abortion in part. And so they, they did have some significant interesting names on this letter. Do, do you think they had a point though, uh, uh, Justin? Do you think that morally and policy-wise, do you think the Democratic Party platform in 2016, uh, its approach to abortion needs to be adjusted? That's the first question. And then number two, you know, practically help people understand uh and, and we could bat this around a little bit. Help people understand practically what it what it would what it would mean, and sort of what the parameters are for the Democratic Party to to change its platform on abortion. Yeah. So first of all, uh, I do think these folks have a, a point. I think things do need to change. Uh, I'll be frank: the Democratic Party has gone mad when it comes to abortion. Um, you, you went from a space where it's saying, you know, it's not something that we want it to happen, but if it happens, we want it to be safe, legal and rare 
to really, and you know, I was a I was a delegate at the Democratic National Convention in 2016, to really celebrating it as as a, as a social good and no problem with it. Shout out your your abortion, uh, and that's a change that I think you know Democrats would be remiss to just look past. Uh, and so I'm glad that this group, shout out to, to Kristen Day and the, the other folks that signed it. I'm glad this group is stepping up and saying something. And you see a lot of men and women of color on that. Right. Uh, who if you, you're on Twitter, you would you would think that secular progressivism progressivism speaks for them on that matter. But any of us are who are in those communities know that's just not the truth, that the, the view of abortion is very different on the ground than what you see coming out of. The, you know, the Democrats national office and all that other stuff. And so I think it's great when people uh, voice those opinions. As many of you know, the AND campaign has the whole uh, life project uh, going on right now where some sisters are just letting people know how they feel about abortion and, uh, and about life. And they're doing it in their own terms that they don't want others to speak for them. So check that out. We have some sisters actually giving their stories uh, uh, this week. And so I think people will really benefit from that. But at the end of the day, they're saying, hey, we are pro-life and pro-woman because we don't see those two things as mutually exclusive. And so I think that's in part what this letter did. Uh, I would just add that it has to be a sustained effort because to, to kind of answer your second question, to change the platform, if they're going to, you know, if they were going to do that, would take a lot of sustained pressure and they would have to feel like they're going to lose something uh, in order to make that change because there's a lot of money right. behind the pro, pro, pro-choice side of this conversation. And really, for me, it comes down for the Democratic Party, whether they're going to listen to the people or whether they're going to listen to the money. And those are the two things that talk in politics, votes and money. And and so they're going to have to make that decision because I think they're on a path that's leading them away from the people. And while Donald Trump is holding the party together uh, to some extent, when he's gone, they're going to need more than that uh, to hold everything together. And so they're really going to have to start thinking through whether they want to be uh following all the directives of these special interest groups or list or taking more time to listen to the people. And that's, that's going to be an important decision. Folks, uh, the platform will come out as well as vice president Biden's choice of a running mate just in the next couple of weeks. I mean, we're heading into August, which is convention time. And so, you know, obviously there'll be a lot to be attentive to in the, in the platform. And as these conventions happen, but would urge you to, to take a look at the, the section on abortion that comes up in the platform compare it to previous years so that you have us so that you're not just viewing it in an isolated way but so that you could get a sense of how the party has addressed it uh, in in the past and I know quite a few eyes will will be on that uh, Justin we, we've covered a, a lot of less serious ground and topics uh, on this show I know we're about ready to to land the plane on on this one. I have to say, Italian football uh, returned about four or five weeks ago, and it's been such a respite from <laughs> from uh, sort of that that COVID various restraints COVID has has placed. I've been watching the games, uh, the matches with my with with my girl, and and that's been it's been the only live sport really. So it's been fun seeing. Italian football teams on ESPN, like in the middle of the day, uh, when they usually don't get that kind of attention. Uh, and they've been playing like every almost like six days a week. So it's just been just been on every day. We are starting to get more sports uh, back in the States. Uh, baseball returned this past week. And then NBA returns 
I think July 30th, and it's going to be an interesting sort of setup, interesting sort of tournament, I guess. I'm excited because I think in this kind of unpredictable environment, anything can happen. Like a lot of the times when you get to the playoffs in the NBA season, it seems like a fait accompli, like what the what the what, what the Western and Eastern championships are going to look like and then what the finals will look like. I kind of feel like if if you're a team that's been like a six, seven, eight seed and 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 been trying to get over the hump, you know, this is the this is potentially the time to do it. I mean, I'm looking at like Milwaukee Bucks and thinking like this may be the like if they get on a roll, like this could be the time. Uh, oh, how, how are you looking at this? I don't even know what to call it, like a season, a tournament. Um, uh, how are you looking at, at the restart of uh, of, of NBA? Well, for one, I got to start for the record by saying I only know one kind of football. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I want to make sure that we're clear yeah. on that, so, uh, the distinction there. Very important. <laughs> you know what? In regards to the NBA season, I haven't given it too much heavy thought. I'm just, I'm just looking forward to forward to uh, forward to it uh, coming. Uh, yeah, it's been a long time coming. I hope everybody stays safe. It, it, you know, it seems like they. Uh, have things under the, under control to some extent. We'll see if that uh, remains to be the case. But I just want to see some basketball. I want to hear some trash talk. We've already talked to my about my uh, tribalism, my sports tribalism theorem. I want I want to see folks be a little tribal and and just cheer for their teams. I'll have an eye out. Everybody knows I'm a, I'm a Westbrook guy, so I have an eye out uh, for the Rockets. I'll be looking to see what yeah. the Clippers are going to do. But I think you make a good point for a team who may not have been doing so great. You got new life. You know, you have new life here. And if you can pull it together for a shorter amount of time, you can you can get a ring. So uh, I just hope I hope people have fun with it. Um, I think we still have to be talking about these serious issues, but it's okay to lighten the mood for a moment uh, to enjoy sports and things of that nature. So I'm I'm, I'm for it, man. I'm looking looking forward to it and and looking forward to talking some trash. Uh, So. Yeah. Hey, folks, thanks so much for listening. We're glad to be back. We're going to be coming back to weekly episodes, especially with with so much going on, uh, both uh, in the world and the country. And also the ant campaign is just just moving right now. And so we'll have updates for you every week on how you could be involved how you can know what, what, what we're up to. Uh, and we're grateful for your support. Uh, Justin, any any closing words? Yeah, I would just say AnCamp as usual. There's a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of a faithful witness uh, who loves social justice and who won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time. Amen. Amen. Have a blessed week, y'all. This is the groove. Tell me, can you handle it? I'm schooled in the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave. I'm unchained. I'm Frederick Douglass with a this episode was brought to you in part by the Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.